Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Great to see you here. Um, my name is Robert Faulkner. I'm the research director of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. And it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Richard Sennett and Dr. Shani Auger to the stage. Um, before we start, I've been asked to make an announcement, and this concerns the LSE Student Union's fundraising arm called RAG. They're collecting donations tonight for three of their chosen uh, charities. One is a local one, single homeless project. Another one is a national charity called MIND. And the third one is an international one called Teach a Man to Fish. Um, the students from RAG, they will be outside collecting after the event, so uh, it would be great if you could donate. Thank you for that. Uh, back to tonight's event. The, the lecture tonight is the third in a series of lectures that Professor Sennett uh, is delivering this term on the theme of welfare after uh, beverage. He has already covered the topics of dependence and bare life, and the final lecture will be on the state and civil society, which I'd like to emphasize will be delivered next week, not on Wednesday, but on Tuesday, again here in the old theater. So if you're planning to come, remember that change. The topic of today's lecture is sacrifice, which of course is closely connected to the theme of consumption. The classic welfare state did not really address itself to the problems of consumption. After all, when Beveridge worked on his plan, his great plan in the 1940s, the problem wasn't so much overconsumption. The problem was there wasn't enough to consume. But today we seem to suffer much more likely than in the past from the problem of overconsumption. And the threat of climate change in particular forces us to consider new ways of dealing with consumption. If we are to save the planet, scientists uh, tell us, we need to consume less. We, in other words, we need to make sacrifices. And how this should change our thinking about the provision of welfare is the big question. And I look forward to hearing about this topic from our speakers. Now, let me briefly introduce our speakers, and then I'll uh, clear the stage to get on with the program. First of all, Richard Sennett who will kick off tonight with his lecture. He's, of course, one of the world's leading sociologists, and we're fortunate enough to have him uh, hold a professorial appointment here, as well as the one he has at New York University. His research interests are extremely wide-ranging. They include the relationship between urban design and urban society, urban family patterns, the welfare system, the history of cities, and the changing nature of work. Apart from having published seminal texts in sociology, he is a much sought-after speaker, he's a frequent commentator in the media, and he has served as an advisor on urban policy here in the UK to the Labour Party and, and others. Uh, Shani Augert will follow up the lecture with her remarks. She's an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. Uh, Shani took her first degree from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and then followed this up with a master's and a PhD here in media and communications at the LSC. Her research interests are equally wide-ranging. They include gender and the media, media representations and contemporary culture, 
representations of suffering, new media, the internet, and globalization, to name but a few. She's published widely on these topics, including her most recent book entitled Heading Home, Motherhood, Work, and the Failed Promise of Equality, which is also on the topic of sacrifice. So I'm looking forward to this. But before we kick off, could I remind you the usual housekeeping rules? Could you please turn your phones to silent? We're going to record this lecture. And in case there are any Twitter users in the room, you don't have to switch off your phone. Uh, just keep it silent. The hashtag is, of course, LSE, LSE Beverage. Uh, after the lecture, there will be a time, hopefully, good half an hour for you to ask questions to the speakers, and I'll uh, then take those in turn. But please do join me now in welcoming our speaker, Professor Richard Sennett, to deliver his lecture, uh, Welfare After Beverage Sacrifices. Richard. Okay. Um, I should say that all the, the charts and data that I'm going to present to you are in a website, and when I finish talking, I'll leave the website uh, address up here so you can get the data. I, I don't know about you. It's very hard for me to take in a lot of data that flashes across the screen uh, instantly. You can also leave comments on it, and people are beginning to argue with each other, which is good, and with me, which is good. Uh, tonight, I'm going to talk about a subject that, as Robert says, was far, far from the minds of Beveridge and his colleagues as, a, um, as something that the welfare state had to think about long term. It's about the relationship between climate uh, change and the um, uh, sacrifices people have to make in terms of consumption. They did think about it, however, as a short-term problem of rationing. And so what we're going to look at tonight is the ways in which this is a longer-term prospect of rationing. Now, I should say that because of the f Brexit, <laughs> this is going to be a problem we'll all face in a different way in two months. Uh, as you know, uh, um, Britain uh, imports most of its fresh food from the EU. And if we crash out uh, as looks very likely after last night, without a deal with Brexit, uh, there's going to have to be food rationing in two months. Uh, and I'll show you why that is. So the question about what are you going to sacrifice in your consumption, how is... Um, how is the state to allocate a scarce resource is not something that is a kind of abstraction lying out there. Uh, and uh, 
I didn't, when I was writing these lectures, I was, I assumed that reason would prevail and that we, we would not crash out of the European Union. After having listened to these politicians last night, um, uh, uh, I no longer harbor that fantasy. Um, the likelihood of us crashing out of the European Union without a deal, and so having to ra ra ration food as well as medicines is significantly increased because um, from the European side, they're not going to do what the Brits think they will do, which is roll over and give them a different deal. So anyhow, uh, what I would like to do, first of all, is show you some of the usual scare statistics about what climate change it has in store for us. And I, I am slightly, um, I am, I'm slightly ambivalent about showing this too because they're almost, these scare statistics are almost, um, they, the eyes glaze over from them. Here is, um, uh, a projection that my uh, research assistant and I, Shoni Orgrad, uh, made about world, the world energy mix in um, 16 years. And you can see that um, we're nowhere near dealing with, it's mostly coal, coal oil, uh, renewables, very small amount in 2035. So, you know, we're on a downward path. Um, one of the problems of climate change is deforestation. And this will give you an idea of how it looks in uh, the Americas, north and south. As I say, you can, you can study more of this. Um, as you see, Brazil, that's the big threat. Um, Deforestation is linked to um, uh, other kinds of threats, notably uh, lack of water. And we've made this projection of desertification in uh, northern Africa uh, at the same period, by 2035, that there is this band of desertification, which is going to extend much, much more than the deserts uh, now encompass. Uh, that's what desertification looks like. As I say, you, kn you know these images. They're, they're in your head. One thing you might not know is that um, in working with climate, we talk about sacrifice zones, that is, zones in which um, uh, there are sections of the world which are deforested or whose uh, water resources are used to um, allow other parts of the world to consume. This is a slide made by my friend Al Weitzman which shows uh, how the uh, security, so-called security wall between Palestine and Israel 
uh, is set in uh, so that the desertifying parts of of uh, uh, back here between Gaza and Syria are located in oops I'm sorry I'm so bad at this stuff are that the security wall also finds follows the path of desertification. So what are called sacrifice zones are political zones. They're not they're territories which are increasingly being um, used as a way of defining uh, political power and powerlessness. Um, I thought you might be interested. In, this is a world map of 30 hot spots where fresh water is in danger, uh, uh, something that is uh, not really a threat for us in Britain. However, the opposite side of climate change, that is too much water, is a great threat to us. And this map we've made shows the, the watery parts of it where... Um, uh, we expect to have uh, flooding throughout Britain. Again, this is all orientated to 2035. This is not somewhere distant in the future, except for the following slide. This is what I mean by uh, over-the-top climate change. I happen to love this slide. This is, if there were four degrees of warming this is what central London would look like in terms of flooding. And n nothing that we've built uh, in terms of the Thames barrier uh, would stop this from happening. I have to say it looks very beautiful to me, but let's put that aside. And th the reality of it is this is what New Orleans looked like in 2005, which was the first wake-up call in the Americas to um, flooding, which can't be controlled by, by uh, normal means. Now, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to leave you with this scare slide. Because what I want to talk to you about tonight is the background to thinking about rationing under these kinds of conditions of climate change, which is uh, growing increasingly out of control. So that's the, my contribution to what we're going to be talking about tonight. First of all, you should know that this is the notion of nature as scarcity is something rather new. The cornucopia, the notion that nature is full, is an idea that goes in Western civilization, goes back to Hesiod. And the problem is how to extract um, uh, uh, goods from this cornucopia. Rather than there being not enough, uh, the problem is how to get at this, um, uh, this abundance. Coming much closer to our own time, the notion of the cornucopia is something that in the age of exploitation and colonialization was reinforced by the notion that there are riches somewhere else in the world 
which are just waiting, low-hanging fruit, just waiting for us uh, to to um, uh, to uh, to pick, coupled with a huge change in Europe, which is not so obvious, which is that the technology of mining in the 17th century gave people a whole new idea with the technology of mining radically improved in the 17th century. And it gave people a whole new idea of technological ways to exploit the earth itself. It's a very, very important phenomenon that below the crust of the earth lay coal, uh, but also other kinds of resources that using the proper technology we're just waiting uh, to to um, to be to be there as you know the machine industrialized the cornucopia that is that machinery would produce even more of um, uh, things um, example for this is the relationship between coal and steel that when the Bessemer uh, steel, uh, steel furnaces came in, people saw this as an expansion of uh, the, uh, of the re- resources of, of the earth that iron and coal could produce. So that's the background to this whole issue about climate change. A long, long cultural uh, political and technological belief that there's more than enough in nature to go around. And that's, of course, what has you know, changed now that we understand that the effort to use that cornucopia was self-destructive. That's basically where we're at. Um, so that's the background to this. Uh, thing. And uh, it's one of the reasons that climate scientists have fought so hard to get people to say this is real is because so, it's so deep-rooted in Western culture that there's potentially more than enough to go around. Now, the, what I want to say to you next about this is that um, to focus on the notion of scarcity. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we need to clarify is the relationship between scarcity and uh, uh, shortages. The difference between them is that scarcity is there's not enough of a resource, whereas a shortage is that there's not enough at a given price. Um, that's, it's a crucial distinction. A lot of climate trading was based on, on basically a confusion between scarcity and shortages uh, in, in its original form uh, and clarified by and reversed by our colleague uh, Nicholas Stern who separated these two out and said, no, this is not a price issue. This, this is not an issue of shortages. It's an issue of scarcity. The reason that matters 
is that then scarcity becomes a phenomenon which is inseparable in a lot of economic thinking from competition. Uh, that uh, scarcity begets zero-sum competition. Um, uh, economists call this positional composition. It's a zero-sum game. That if there's, for instance, scarce water, that if I, uh, in well, I shouldn't put it this way, if I were in the Israeli government, I would take the possibility of that water away from the Palestinians in order to enjoy it myself. You could look at it more, that's the, what A.L. Weitzman is, is trying to un, unpack. You could look at this in another way, in cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles, which are draining the aquifer, uh, the southwest aquifer. That means that they're competing in economic terms with uh, farmers uh, to take the water away from them. If you think about scarcity in these terms, you're always thinking about this zero-sum game of inequality. And that's important because the effort in social thought to, to deal with this inequity uh, is, has spawned a lot of notions about uh, um, the, the ways of removing competition from the experience of scarcity. The most important of, of these is the formulation about, of John Rawls. Um, didn't know much about climate science, but he knew a great deal about uh, w the politics of scarcity. And his notion was uh, that basically what has to happen in a system of scarcity, not shortage, was that there has to be redistribution so that those who are most needy get the most of that resource. That is to reverse the power relationship so it is not a zero-sum game. In this case, uh, let's take the farmers in the American Southwest, that the poorer the farmer, the more water they would get from the aquifer. That somebody who has a swimming pool would never see it filled. That's the Rawlsian notion that you have a kind of redistribution of resources when you have a fixed scarcity. The problem with that in social theory is that the kinds of resource lack that we have uh, are facing in climate change doesn't work in Rawlsian terms. Uh, that redistribution is not sufficient in order to deal with the kinds of absolute lacks that we have uh, long term. Um, there has to be an element of shared, uh, let me put it this way, um, if I need a quart of water today and I'm rich, and you need a quarter of water 
today to hydrate yourself and you're poor, should you actually take some of my water away in order for you as a collective group of poor people to have enough water? It's a nonsense. You know, we all need it. And so the problem of in social thinking about, about climate change is that these are goods which can't be redistributed. They need to be rationed. And since we're about to all suffer from a lack of fresh food, I thought I'd show you this, uh, in, uh, uh, this stuff I thought would be irrelevant to this talk, but that I'll show you in terms of rationing food. Um, if you look on this chart, you'll see that introduction, the individual contributions to stopping change, uh, climate change or reducing it, um, are uh, quite, uh, quite various. For instance, uh, uh, traveling less makes a big difference. Uh, getting rid of cars makes a big difference. But eating plant-based food won't do very much about, st uh, about reducing climate change. You can see it's right. I, I, I hope I don't blind anybody. right here, and this is below the kinds of uh, sacrifice that individuals would have to make uh, in order uh, for that to make a difference to climate change. The reason I show you this is that the sacrifices in terms of food are not alone uh, going to be enough to stop this problem, but the lack of certain kinds of food, if we re, um, rejiggered our, our consumption and used less of certain kinds of foods, would make a radical difference in our own lives. Here is, this is actually Beveridge worked this out. This is the temporary rationing that in 1940 that he worked out that I never thought I'd show this slide but it's you may this may be your diet uh, in two months this is Beveridge's solution to the rationing problem for everyone it's not redistributional but it's for everyone whereas uh, this would be the kind of food rationing uh, that would um, contribute to keeping the global temperature between uh, two degrees uh, Celsius. It's not a solution, remember? But it's, this would be what would be today the, the transformation. It would mean we'd all become vegetarians, basically. And it means that basically the British food economy would be bankrupt because we'd stop uh, uh, eating pork and growing pork. Uh, we'd eat much less beef, lamb, 
and poultry. And uh, those are the mainstays of British agriculture. So imagine something like this, that in 30, uh, no, uh, say 19 years, if we get up um, to uh, 2035, the, basically for the sake of, maintain, of not contributing to climate change, all of uh, uh, the use of land in Britain would be radically, we'd have to radically transform uh, how we use the land. Could we actually grow our own fresh food that way? It's not easy to grow lettuce in a climate like this. That's why we import it, or tomatoes. We'd still need to be an importing nation of food in order to have enough to eat. But to act in this, way, uh, in this responsible way, we'd have to give up not only what we consume, but what we produce. And here's another way to look at this uh, uh, of uh, the kinds of, it, I just take one, one, uh, one item of this, a particular favorite of mine is farmed salmon. I love smoked salmon. I don't know if any of you. And this is something that we should very logically begin to diminish. This is lamb and beef. But in other words, the logic of this is that to participate in climate change as individuals, we would radically have to, we'd become vegetarians if not vegans. Now, that's the prospect of this. And the question is, how could we do this? How could we get people to consume not merely less meat? Uh, oh, and I should say the reason for that is that animals have high degrees, they emit a lot of methane, which is a no-no uh, in terms of, of the climate. It's... Uh, um, animal shit is a very bad thing for the climate. P plants don't don't do anything like that. So the the issue for th theory is this: what's the inducement to get people to eat less like this? The inducement for oops, the inducement in um, beverages time was war. That is, that people felt that they had a reason to consume less because it was part of an effort to survive violence. When you take away uh, the notion of war as a disciplining condition, what is there in civil society that induces people to want to have less. Uh, and that is the, the problem that I think is a problem of welfare. How to convince people that without the threat of war that they share something that leads to a radical change in behavior like this. 
it can't just be imposed. That is to say, in Beveridge was, um, Beveridge's colleague was very clear about this. You could issue rationing cards, but of course they could be traded on the black market, et cetera, et cetera. The, the system could be corrupted, just the way a lot of carbon trading has been corrupted. It required a, a, an enormous amount of discipline in the society of people who wanted to use these rationing cards. And on the whole in Britain, there was a very modest black market in the States as well, uh, but particularly in Britain. The threat of violence was a disciplining condition that created that social compact. Climate change, apart from these zones of sacrifice, is removed from that kind of consideration. It's, uh, you know, if we say we're going to make war on the climate, we're already in la-la land. You know, we're in Trump land. You know, as though there's victory over, oops, that there's victory over climate. And that's a completely self-defeating, irrational way to think about this. So this is where I wanted to take to you tonight because the notion of sacrifice is absolutely a problematic here that we have to think through in order and the, the desire to sacrifice in civil society if we are going to actually consume less. It can't be done by power alone. It's something that requires desire and will in order to meet these, uh, the conditions of, 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 uh, that climate change poses to us. I am going to leave on the screen where you can get all this data and some more about climate change and uh, the welfare state. In this, uh, this is our website, and if you've got any thoughts about, about this, please, Put it on the website as well. But the reason I have asked Shawnee to join me in this discussion is because the problem of sacrificing something in yourself, which she has done, uh, explored in a totally different context, bears on the issue of how much people are willing to sacrifice um, something as basic as eating, as food. Uh, let alone things like um, uh, traveling right, or keeping houses cold, that there is an analytic issue about the relationship between need uh, and uh, desire. So with that, I turn over the, the forum to you. Thank you, Richard. Okay. We'll... Now hear from Shani with a response to the lecture, and after that, I'll open up for discussion. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, it's, of course, a true honor and pleasure to respond to Richard's um, really thought-provoking uh, lecture this evening. Um, and as Richard mentioned in my lecture, um, I'd like to focus on the notion of sacrifice, and I'm going to draw on my own research, which at first seems miles and miles away. Uh, from the topic of today's lecture, but I hope you'll um, 
be able to see the connections that I'm trying to make. So um, I've just written a book about uh, professional women who quit their careers. So they sacrifice their careers to take care of their families. Um, but who remain deeply ambivalent and uh, often angry and bitter about this choice. Uh, most of the women I interviewed felt they were sacrificing successful and in most cases rewarding careers and giving up the promise to realize themselves as professionals as they headed home to care for their families. At the same time, they were fully aware of their financial privilege to make this choice, and specifically uh, due to their partner's high earnings that afforded them to make this choice. So the choice to leave the professional world was one they deeply regretted and lamented, and yet simultaneously was one that they felt served to protect, specifically to protect their families. I want to give you a short example it's not related to the topic of climate change, but through this, I think, I hope to get to some of the, the crux of the desire and the difficulties with sacrificing. Um, so one of the women I, in, I interviewed, uh, who I call Jenny, um, is a 47-year-old stay-at-home mother of two children, and she's married to a white English man who works as a senior lawyer in the city. As a girl, um, she told me she was quite political. In secondary school, she founded the Black Women's Student Society in her um, school. Later in university, she was very involved in black feminist activism. And she dreamt of becoming an engineer, but she was told by everyone, no chance, you're a girl. If your brother wants to be an engineer, go ahead, not you. Um, but she was resolute, and in the 90s, she graduated with a degree in engineering. Following graduation in early 20s, uh, she started working as a software engineer in a telecommunications company, uh, which was an environment she found, as she described it, very um, exciting and accommodating and liberal. Um, and she progressed in her career, but after nine years when her first child was born and upon the advice of another female colleague, she moved to part-time working an arrangement that lasted several years, but after then the company was taken over by uh, another global firm, the working conditions uh, worsened dramatically and Jenny decided to take voluntary redundancy. And she then worked in several organizations uh, part-time um, and been deeply unhappy. The pay was poor, she was on a temporary contract without job security. Um, and her husband, uh, at that same time, worked very long hours and during the week was largely absent from home. All that time, something quite important happened, which was that her daughter was subject to ongoing bullying at school. So Jenny realized that in her words uh, that she and her husband were too busy, totally taking their eye off the ball, and she said to me that just highlighted that I needed to be around more. And so she quit her career completely. And at the end of the interview, um, she told me with deep sadness, and I quote, she said, my 16-year-old feminist self would be horrified seeing me not having a kind of role outside the home. So she experienced her decision to quit her career as a painful sacrifice, and it was a betrayal of her desires and of her identity. And yet, at the very same time, she feels that the sacrifices she made has protected her daughter 
and her protected her family. And in some ways, this ambivalence really uh, is similar to what you, Richard, describe in The Hidden Injuries of Class, about sacrifice and uh, the working class men who saw um, the struggles of adult life redeemed uh, by sacrifice for the children. Um, and the sacrifice the women I interviewed was very much also about providing the, their families, both their uh, children, but also their husbands, a better life. Um, one of the women I interviewed called it a forced choice. Uh, it was a decision that was forced by toxic workplace structures, by deep-seated sexist narratives that still regard mothers as primary carers. Um, but at the same time, it was a choice that the women felt enabled them to put some kind of order after struggling with hugely stressful and chaotic two-parent earning uh, lives that were profoundly incompatible with family life. And it was a choice that ultimately, not, not at the start normally, but ultimately brought them some pleasures and even pride. So I think that this oxymoron of forced choice is quite evocative as a way of thinking about the kind of sacrifices that, uh, Richard, you spoke about, specifically those involved in the rationing uh, akin to that in wartime. Um, because forced choice is something that simultaneously implies loss um, and lack of agency, a sense of being compelled to give up. But at the same time, and this is where I draw on uh, René Girard that you um, uh, um, pointed me to, uh, it's an act that serves to reinforce um, a sense of uh, some kind of a social bond. Um, and I find Girard's notion particularly helpful in highlighting the function of sacrifice as uh, often to protect the entire community from its own violence. Uh, so in the case of the women I studied, the sacrifices that they made was a choice that protected their families from the profoundly destructive pressures of two partners combining highly demanding jobs and parenting. And in the case of climate change, the sacrifices that Richard um, suggested that citizens would have to make would serve, of course, the planet's, uh, the Earth's survival and indeed to quell the devastation that's been wrought for decades on this planet. Um, so while I think the, the, the notion of forced choice might be quite evocative, I want to um, highlight three significant problems with the forced choice that the women I interviewed felt they had to make, and I want to suggest that perhaps we can learn something uh, for, from their experience about sacrifice to the sacrifice we're talking about tonight. So the first issue is the sense of betrayal that many of the women I interviewed felt. And these, this is, these are interestingly feelings that were primarily directed towards the welfare state. Um, uh, one, one of the women really captured it very uh, vividly when she described the government and the state as conducting a huge neoliberal experiment of pushing women to work um, so they could engage in capitalism and exercise their citizenship through consumption. And she felt that she'd been forced to participate in this experiment, but she'd be crucially deprived of the resources and the conditions that would have enabled her to survive the experiment, let alone feel respected. So it was a betrayal of the welfare state. Uh, specifically, she, she felt deprived of uh, the capacity to afford quality childcare, and uh, 
having to work inhumane working hours. Because had, so sacrificing her career was a decision that she made as a response to feeling betrayed, having been coaxed that uh, she should pursue a full-time career, having been promised equality without the societal infrastructure of support that would have enabled the realization of this promise. Because had an appropriate infrastructure of support been there in the first place, these women wouldn't have been locked into this forced choice. And many of the women also spoke of how the sacrifice they were compelled to make was not recognized or wasn't, wasn't valued, not by their families and crucially not by the government. It was quite interesting how much anger um, uh, and uh, bitterness was directed towards the government as not recognizing the sacrifice. Um, they spoke of feeling invisible. They spoke of being feeling at the bottom of the heap. Um, and these are feelings, of course, that are rooting, uh, rooted in the devaluing of care that Richard and Nikki discussed in the first lecture in the series. So it seems to me that the experience of these women, however remote they are from the topic of climate change, can offer us a useful lesson about the personal sacrifices that we'll all be asked to make to help prevent uh, an environmental catastrophe. Uh, so the sacrifices that individuals will have to make it seems to me from the women's experience, must be met by pivotal systemic and structural changes with respect to how we create and use energy. And crucially, they must be met with recognition and with valuing these sacrifices in order to ensure that people retain also a sense of self-integrity and self-respect in making these sacrifices. Um, and again, it's really closely related to the questions, Richard, you raised in the very beginning at the first lecture of um, how can the welfare state support people without provoking a sense of betrayal and a sense of dispossession? I think it's very much connected also to the demand, how do you uh, make your citizens sacrifice without a sense of having been betrayed? Um, and how can uh, we make care dignified, care in this case for all living things on the earth? Um, so while we've focused on the sacrifices that people will have to make individually, it's crucial, it seems to me, that these individual solutions are really deeply supported by um, this uh, mechanism of uh, recognition of value. Um, the second important lesson that I think we can learn from the forced choices that the women I interviewed uh, made concerns the unequal character of sacrifice. Uh, and this really relates to what you've just said, that it will have to be shared equally and collectively the rationing system. So the women's decision to give up education and successful career and return home to care for their families was, were experienced as profoundly unequal and, just, and unjust and inequality, uh, unsurprisingly perhaps, perhaps they felt most vis-a-vis -vis of their partners. Um, all of them, I should say, all the women I interviewed were in heterosexual and heteronormative uh, relationship. And so they felt that the sacrifices they made were, uh, to a large extent, facilitated their husband's career. So it wasn't just about protecting their children. It was about giving up their own aspirations to uh, facilitate their husband's career. Um, so a sentiment that was repe repeated in many of the counts was, I chose to give up my career because he wouldn't. 
Um, and when I asked them about whether the possibility of their husbands quitting their jobs had ever come up, the response was almost always a smirk. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting that quite a few of the women I interviewed earned more than their partners when they quit. So unsurprisingly, therefore, there was a lot of resentment and bitterness and suppressed rage about the sacrifice that they had to make which is here actually different from the injuries, from the hidden injuries of class, where you're describing something that was more of a kind of an exchange relationship, yeah, of uh, respective sacrifices of each of the members of the family. Um, and I don't know, but there might be an interesting connection here be be between uh, what uh, my study and many other feminist studies highlight, which is men's uh, reticence to sacrifice their careers and needs, and some evidence uh, that suggests that men are finding it quite difficult to cut down on consuming meat and um, on that the men uh, leave a bigger carbon footprint. So just some interesting statistics. According to the European Institute for Gender Equality, women tend to be substantially more sustainable consumers than men. Um, they attach more importance to energy-efficient transport and fuels. They're more likely to buy eco-labeled products, and they're more willing to change their behaviors to achieve sustainability goals, including energy efficiency. Um, research carried out in Sweden, for instance, shows that women are more likely to feel greater concern about ecological footprints. Um, in the UK, uh, there's interesting figures from the National Diet and Nutrition Survey, that maybe soon is going to look very different, um, show that men consume significantly higher quantities of red and processed meat. And the US figures show that a similar pattern, but also highlight an ongoing trend of women redu reducing their consumption of red meat. Um, and it's interesting because something like age doesn't factor at all almost in this survey, where, whereas gender comes out as a really important dimension. Um, and indeed, I think the the, the, the comparison or the context of uh, beverage wartime rationing, it's interesting to note that women and especially housewives who bore disproportionate burden of the post-war austerity in Britain were one of the sections of society that were most disaffected by rationing and ultimately were pushing towards the end of rationing. Mm. Um, m m much more so than working um, class men. Uh, there's a really interesting book which is called Austerity in Britain on that time, yeah. um, which documents that. So what I'd like to highlight really is that the sacrifices that Richard talked about that will be expected very soon of all of us uh, seems to me will have to be enforced so that they're shared equally and collectively because we know already that the rich are buying the way out of any sacrifices. So for the transformation to sustainable and energy to succeed without provoking a sense of betrayal uh, and without provoking this sense of injustice and rage, um, the sacrifices must be shared as equally as possible. And it seems to me that gender here is a crucial dimension that will absolutely have to be addressed. Um, and finally, my last point is while I totally agree with Richard's that rationing is likely to be necessary, crucially in addition to other fundamental and urgent changes concerning the consumption of fossil fuel, I have a, a concern or maybe a discomfort about this form of sacrifice, and it connects to René Girard's emphasis on the purpose of sacrifice as restoring, restoring harmony to a com community and restoring the social fabric. 
because we know that order and harmony often have gone hand in hand with oppression. Um, so in the women uh, I studied, uh, the sacrifice they made facilitated the conservation of a very particular type of order, which is that of the heteronormative family, which of course has historically been a site of oppression and inequality and injustice. In the context of the proposal for the, the state-managed rationing, I think the political consequences of restoring order, quote-unquote, could be detrimental. And I, I'm thinking here in particular about the scale of state surveillance uh, of its citizens that rationing would involve, as if the surveillance we have at the moment is not enough, yeah? So just to tie up, so while it's clear that profound social transformation might take place in order to ward off climate catastrophe, and that sacrifices will surely have to be made. One, I think, personal sacrifices demanded from the individual must be accompanied by really a, a mechanism and a structural and systemic changes, but also mechanisms of support to make these sacrifices and mechanisms of recognizing and valuing these sacrifices. Secondly, that there has to be a system that distributes, distributes and enforces, enforces these sacrifices so that they're shared equally. And third, that great care and caution are required in relation to how these sacrifices, and particularly the rationing system, are to be managed by the state so we don't repeat the catastrophes of past times. Um, so these are my thoughts uh, in response. Thank you. Thank you very much, Johnny. Okay. Do come and join us. Now, before I open the floor, uh, let me just ask Richard, would you like to respond briefly to, to Shana's remarks? Yes, these are enormously uh, illuminating remarks to me. The notion about forced choice in particular, I think is that there's a lot of work in thinking about what we, uh, what we are facing. I want to just say one other thing about this, which... Um, is that in most climate change work, there's a distinction that's made between adaptation and mitigation. And mitigation is at the extreme sort of building your way out of climate change. That's what a lot of architects who deal with climate change want to do. Holding back the water is things like that. Adaptation is actually working with the fact that something is beginning to, uh, to degrade in the environment. And uh, uh, sacrifice falls within the rubric, uh, I think, more of adaptation than mitigation. And the reason I think this is important is that the kinds of choices you're talking about are ones in which you realize that there's a reality which can't be reversed. Mm -hmm. That's what forced ad, uh, uh, choice is about. You're faced with something that's outside your power to reverse, which is, in cultural terms, a, uh, in large cultural terms, um, a kind of uh, deconstruction of the whole notion of the cornucopia, which is there's always something more that's going to be found, a solution, uh, there's going to be more resources that are going to be found for a, a reversal. A very good book in this regard is a book by uh, William Lease called The Domination of Nature. It's a, a 
book of about 20 years ago, in which he looks at when the cornucopia runs out, people still think that somewhere there's a solution to filling it up again. And my own view about climate change is that we've run out of, the cornucopia is empty. No. We, there is, uh, I mean, of course we always want to mitigate when we can to build what we can. But the dominant way of dealing with uh, uh, forced choice has to be to understand that we have to adapt to something which is, as I think is realistic, irreversible. Mm -hmm. If only Theresa May had understood this last <laughs> night. She's faced with an irreversible uh, and rather, uh, problem, and rather than acknowledge its irreversibility, she's going to try and mitigate it. You understand how this works out as, uh, as a way of coping with an issue like this. So that, I would think, in the larger context of thinking about mm -hmm. climate change, not just food, but as a whole, is it, there's something tragic about forced choice. There, it, it's very Jewish. <laughs> I hate to say this since we're both Jewish, but it's a, it's, it's a very <laughs> Jewish idea of reality which is you, you desire alone is not going to make, uh, is not going to lead you to survive. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, you've, you have stunned us there. Um, and I should add that, uh, you, of course, you're free to refer to Brexit if you like, but some of us may have hoped uh, to spend an evening without discussing Brexit. So, so can I encourage you all to st uh, stay to the topic of climate change, uh, despite all the temptation to refer back to yesterday's vote. Now, I'd like to collect a few questions from the audience. I'd like to get you all into the conversation. Please uh, say who you are and what your affiliation is. And you can either just ask a general question or direct it to any of our panelists. I'll leave it to them to decide. Uh, which questions they want to address. If there are lots of questions, I'll collect a few and we'll go through them one by one. Uh, I, I assure you that. I'm going to start here on this side and I'll work my way through the room. That's uh, the gentleman in the blue sweater. Hello. Um, I'm just thinking... This Who are you? Sorry? John. John, just an individual. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking of this notion of sacrifice and uh, wondering if we can't think about positive and exciting change rather than sacrifice all of the time, particularly when you're talking about changing our diet. Because there seems to be so much evidence now that our rich diet and the overeating of huge amounts of meat is not just bad for the client, climate, but is actually damaging our health considerably. So can we not think about positively improving things for the, cli for the climate, but also improving our own health and having a much better, more exciting future? Do you want to go ahead with that? Or shall we, I'll, I'll take two then, and then uh, I'll ask the panel to respond. 
Just before what I was going to say anyway, to follow on from that, I think the, the Greg's vegan sausage roll is an important example in like, you know, this has been like the biggest media storm in the so far, like this year or in the last six months or whatever has been the introdu introduction of a vegan sausage roll by the large bakery chain Greg's, which is kind of an example of like, you know, it, 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 it was a kind of exciting media moment and everyone, all young people rushed out to try the vegan sausage roll. Anyway, um, I was... Your name is? Hello, I'm also John. I run a research centre called Teatro Mundi with some help from Richard. Um, I wanted to raise the... I don't know if the, the name Extinction Rebellion rings a bell to any of you, but this is... Um, a, you know, a kind of movement that has become global very, very quickly from a starting point, I think, of, of less than a year ago. Um, and I think what they've done that's quite interesting that relates to kind of what you're talking about is, in a way, kind of flip the problem around from, from kind of climate campaigns that seem to come from elsewhere and tell us what to do um, to saying, we, there's an us, and we are not being protected by our government from a threat. Um, and that, I wonder whether, I, I have a feeling that Extinction Rebellion could become quite important, time will tell, but um, it, it's spreading like absolute wildfire. One of the reasons for that is they've made it completely open source and anyone can kind of take their branding and call themselves Extinction Rebellion anywhere in the world. But yeah, I wondered what your thoughts are on that, on the notion of rebellion. When I first heard it, I was not quite sure it was right, but I'm actually becoming more and more convinced by it as a notion that rather than, um, yeah, that we, we together are demanding you, this kind of, you know, slightly abstract power, um, protect us, and therefore whatever then is done in response to that becomes a kind of response to a desire on the behalf of a collective. So it'd be interesting to think about the success, the potential success of that or what it might do differently okay, as well. Okay, good. Let's, let's go with those two. Richard, would you like to start us off? Um, well, as a dedicated meat eater, I'm, this is, you know, a coruscating loss for me, but I, I'm going to get there. I think the, the extinction rebellions are really an important way station to holding governments to account in a different way than they have been accounted for so far. far which is that, in a way, they are failing to provide welfare. That's what the rebellion is. And that, to me, is great, that it is a way station to saying that we need a state which actually provides welfare. In the I, I don't know what your experience has been, Robert, but when I've gone to these ICC meetings, it's all, always very top-down. We set the terms and conditions of what the citizens have to do in order to meet X goal, rather than we are responding to something that they need. And uh, just to foreshadow the next week's lecture, uh, I think that's a change in what we mean by the state in the welfare state that it's not something that's setting standards, but it's responding to, to needs. But uh, 
ultimately that means that the state has to prov provide. You know, it's not a dialogic condition. You know, if the state has to provide something, it's failing to provide. So, you know, I, I think it's really positive, this movement. There's a question about whether sacrifice is all about losing out or whether there are benefits to be had as well. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, I think just very specifically, I think it's beyond food. So perhaps, yeah. um, you know, I, th I think when you've, you ask people to keep their houses um, at a certain level of temperature, say, I think they're talking about no more than 20 degrees or less even, um, to 18. not use the 18. Okay. Um, not use the cars or some kind of rationing of car use, mileage. I think cumulatively, it seems to me hard not to think about it in terms of sacrifice. Uh, it's, it's not to say that it's not a sacrifice for the good, and I think that's, the, that, that's kind of part of also where Girard's idea of um, sacrifice as kind of helping us to quell violence uh, from within ourselves and to um, promote some kind of uh, order and harmony is useful. But um, I think it's beyond veganism and beyond uh, food yeah, um, in terms yeah. of... Uh, so, um, and I do think that there's a, there is the issue here of a, a limit situation yeah, that you've reached and you're responding to. Um, what would be the alternative way you would frame it, if not sacrifice? I'm interested to know. What would be an alternative? Well, I'll, mm. let's hand yeah. the mic back to John, uh, because I think we just need to settle yeah, on. Just, just very quickly, I mean, I'd, I'd be reframing it as, as positive and exciting change. And of course, if, you know, if I give up my car and I'm now helpless, I can't get about, I can't go anywhere, then that's a very serious sacrifice. But actually, if the state is starting to provide, if there are buses, if there is public transport, if I can get about quite easily, if disabled people too can travel on, on buses, then the whole thing becomes much more exciting and much less about sacrifice and much more about you know, positive and exciting change and, and ways that we can mix together. And if I, if I may just add something to, to that, I think part of the, the problem of, of framing the discussion as sacrifice is that you're inevitably ending up in this kind of deficit perspective. Sacrifice signals you are giving up something that's either essential or highly desirable. But a lot of environmentalists argue that by adopting a, a low uh, carbon a low meat, a low uh, individual mobility kind of lifestyle, we are gaining. We, we're gaining health-wise, better, better nutrition, more exercise, less driving around. I always tell my students at the LC, don't spend so much time traveling and burning carbon. Spend more time in the library reading books. That's good for your brain. And it's good for the climate. Uh, lifestyle changes, that, that, me, that means instead of flying on the weekend to some faraway city for a city break, rushing around and, and not getting much done. Instead of that, we'll stay at home and spend time with family and friends and have a more meaningful life. So, so in other words, is it not possible to frame this also as kind of re- I was about to say regaining control over your life. That's a, uh, that breaks my earlier rule. But, mm -hmm. but regaining a balance that perhaps has been lost. So in other words, there's the, not 
just a problem of consumption. There's a problem of overconsumption that is also right. uh, li- uh, kind of a deficit-creating uh, effect. Well, yes. Yes and no. I mean, I think, to me, the urgency of, of making, um, of dealing with climate change is not going to be addressed by promising people that they'll be happier as a result. I guess that's a kind of political, that's a political position I take with it. That's not an urgent way forward. And um, I think we need something that's more disciplining than you'll be happier, ultimately. Uh, And uh, if it were possible, I guess the part of the issue with this is that since we're losing the ability to control the climate uh, by the means we have now, that um, this would be great if, we, if this were a century ago. I, I think this would be a more, to me, more persuasive argument. I just don't think we're there at this point with its... Um, I, I mean, the four degrees thing is a scare tactic, but we're getting close to two, maybe two and a half within 30 years. Uh, and I don't think the proper, I, I just don't, I, 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 you know, we've got to mobilize against that somehow. And that it requires discipline. Okay, good. I'd, I'd like to take some more questions. There were two over there. And I'll come back to you then. At, yes, at the back of the... Thank you. Hi, I'm Caroline. I have worked in bits of government policy, um, particularly on energy, um, mm-hmm. decarbonizing energy. And one of the things I was interested in was that you, you presented it as being, your proposal as being about rationing demand for things, rationing consumption of them. Um, and thinking about how food rationing worked in the war, it worked in the war because there wasn't enough food. Um, if you're, the, pro- the problem here is there is enough food, you just don't want people to eat it, and then you don't want people to produce it. So aren't you going to have to combine a, a, a rationing of consumption of food with a restriction on the production of food? So I mean, the real problem is that people are growing cows, not that people are eating beef. So... The rationing, I thought, was quite interesting, but isn't that really just a mitigation for the shortage effect that you would have to create in order to make your policy work? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We'll, we'll come back to that, but let's take a second question, yes. Uh, my name is Nick Hopkinson. I'm a specialist in respiratory medicine at Imperial College. Um, I wonder whether, uh, thinking about welfare and uh, climate change, um, and thinking back to last week's uh, discussion, whether whether the role of a universal basic income might be Im- important here, and whether one of the arguments for that is that it has the potential to to reduce a lot of uh, rather useless production and, and consumption um, that is p- particularly pr- you know, uh, uh, production for, for for profit rather than for, for, for use, and that one way to, to decarbonize the economy is actually to stop people driving to jobs in offices which are related to moving money around and, and people then driving uh, to 
produce, you know, to, to work in coffee shops so that the people in the offices can go to a coffee. You know, that, that, that if, if people could do things that were more uh, creative and less, and less carbon intensive, perhaps. Okay. Do you want to handle those quickly, both of the questions, okay. and then I'll move on? Okay. Well, uh, just to say absolutely that what you, you raise about consumption, it, it's, it's, not a, it, it's inseparable from reorientating how an economy would, would, would work. Uh, and putting the food part of this aside, it, um, it would mean, you know, really dealing with this problem is not producing the kinds of things that do harm. And that means a complete reorganization of the e economy, which is, um, going back to the first lecture I, I gave, that's why we need a new version of socialism that's total rather than Blairite. We, we need, no, because, you know, you, you can't do what, what you say is absolutely correct. Well, we can't do that without collective uh, controls of what's made as well as what's, what's consumed. Okay, let me take some more questions. The lady in the green jacket, and there's another question there. Thank you. Um, I'm sitting here thinking that as a child, and I think Woody Allen went, is, is expressed something similar in a film I saw as an adult, but I was one of those children who read that the earth would be moving toward the sun and we would all be burned up in 80 million years, and I sobbed because I felt so badly for what would happen to my descendants. Um, how do we talk to children about all of this? The changes, what's happening in the earth, the threats to everything that... How do we talk to the children? Okay, thank you. Can, could you pass it on? Would you like to go next, yes? Uh, <clears throat> hi, I'm Eloisa Buarque from Brazil, and, and, and I'm here as a visiting fellow. I'm an anthropologist working with Shani. And then uh, what I want to ask is that considering particularly inequalities, because Shani showed up, made us to think about gender inequalities, but coming from probably the most unequal country in the world. I, I think about class and race inequalities, because as I see, in a, in a country like Brazil, poor people would be doing all the sacrifices, you know, but not everybody. So I wonder if you could, you know, explore more the idea of inequalities. Okay, thank you for that. Could you pass it back? Yes, please. I'll take a third question then. Thank you. I'm Robert Hewis, and I'm a member of the public. Um, you mentioned the coercive conditions of war which made rationing possible for beverage. The question is, what are going to be the coercive conditions in 2035 that would make rationing uh, a possibility? Isn't the real danger that the coercive conditions of 2035 are going to be monstrous climate change? Yes. 
Okay, um, three questions. What do you tell the next generation, your children? Secondly, um, how does inequality, race, class, and so on, north, south, play into this? And the last one about cursive measures. Who would like to start? Go ahead. I'll take the children. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a mother of two young children. Um, well, I think, you know, I don't have the answer, but one, one kind of case I'm thinking of is the recent... Um, Iceland advertisement that was banned. I don't know how many people, uh, which apparently has, uh, is, is the most watched Christmas ad, despite the fact that it was banned. Um, so for those of you who, didn't, who haven't seen it, it's uh, the Iceland supermarket um, um, chain um, joined Greenpeace. I think it was actually originally a Greenpeace video, and they've kind of appropriated it. And it's uh, an animated, uh, very well-made version of uh, a girl who's this uh, orangutan appears in her room and uh, there, she doesn't understand what, what is he doing in her room and then he tells her the story that, and this is basically the, the story of deforestation and we kind of, there's constant movement from her room, her wonderful comfortable room to the destruction that is happening. And this was all to promote Iceland's um, uh, claim that they've removed all palm oil uh, products from their supermarkets, which now the BBC have, has exposed that they haven't. Yeah. Um, but to me, and it was very uh, popular, and I read kind of some, you know, among adults and children. Um, but I think it really links to, uh, to uh, Richard's answer to the first John, uh, because this is all about, um, it's a really, you know, it's a beautiful and very uh, utopian version of uh, let's come together with Earth, and it does show the destruction in ways that I think children can relate to. But I think what it doesn't tell, it doesn't tell what sacrifices or what, what affects these, uh, um, this destruction will have, will have on you what kind of steps you will have to make. So it leaves it in this kind of harmonious, she hugs the orang orangutan and he becomes her best friend forever. Um, it seems to me, again, I, I don't know, but I, I know that, for instance, my, I have a child in a secondary school and in her primary school, they're learning a lot about climate change, all very much focused on um, the effects, yeah? Nothing so far that I've heard about what are the implications in terms of um, the kind of measures that needed to be to respond. So it seems to me that that might be one necessary direction, but there might be um, others, of course. Um, I have a kind of indirect response to you about this. And it's when I think about, the, I'm not a climate change expert, but I've been thinking about this problem of, using less and wanting less in terms of something that may seem um, that I think bears on this, which is how to avoid uh, the Puritan notion of, of denial as a state of virtue. You know, uh, the um, uh, Weber put his paws on, his fingers on this, uh, when he wrote the Protestant ethic, that self-denial is a way of people feeling that they're really virtuous. And the more you can uh, amass, 
uh, is good. But what's really the sign of virtue, what makes you really feel good about yourself, is renunciation. And that seems to me fatal. Uh, and uh, as a way of thinking about dealing with using less, that you really feel, God, I'm so much more virtuous than people who, who these slobs who are consuming more meat and all of that. And I, th I don't know, my thought about this would be, would be very important with children, that they think this is objectively good rather than says something about them morally. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying about this? If ever was, he was very, um, he was himself a Puritan in that sense, that the more he could deny himself, uh, the more he felt better than other people who couldn't. And we can't have that mindset about, about dealing with, with, uh, uh, with a situation like this where people have to consume uh, less. So I don't know how you convey that to a child without going to the other extreme and saying you're going to be very happy. Everything is going to be fine if only you never take an airplane in your life or you know something like that. But I think the danger in this, and I see this, um, I'm involved in a climate change group uh, through the UN, is a kind of moralism mm. of sacrifice, which I think is it's a disaster for this. It comes back to making a kind of moral inequality. And that somehow we have to get out of that framework, you know. Um, there on the website, you'll see. I, there, I, I hope it's up there. We've done these sacrifice zones. We, of, you know, as you can imagine, the places that are sacrificing in order that the that the others can enjoy are mostly very poor places. And you'll see that we've mapped them. Uh, Sean and uh, uh, Sasha and I mapped them all over the world, and. Um, I mean, Brazil, you're a champ at this, but there, it's, it's a global phenomenon. What I showed you in, in Africa, that's also the poorest part of the African continent. But I, I really think, I just coming back to this, I really think this is important. We have to have a different discussion about need than, than a moralizing discussion. It just it's it's self-defeating, and it arouses resentment of other people. That what the subtext is: you're really putting me down, mm -hmm. rather than doing something objective. Mm -hmm. You're really saying, mm. you know. Okay. Let's have one more round. We are, we we are up against the time too. There's a bit of uh, scarcity on this one. Um, I can take one more question and then then we'll need to wrap it up. So the gentleman there, yes, please. Uh, the most difficult questions about this. Yeah. Uh, my name is Simon Head, New York University and the New York Review of Books Foundation. I wonder if you could just say something about the political dimension. In other words. 
three economies in particular, the predatory form of capitalism in, uh, unleashed by President Trump, and also the effects of the Indian and Chinese models of very rapid industrialization, which are pushing up energy uses, and, and how that is reconciled to tackling the climate change problem. Uh, I don't have an answer to that, but I can tell you an anecdote. That, as, as most of you know, I, I've consulted a lot for the UN, and uh, one of the, for the Habitat uh, three uh, meetings, which Richard Burdett and Saskia Sassen and I were involved in, we had a long meeting with the Chinese exactly about uh, this. And their notion is much more subtle than you had your innings, now it's our turn. It's much more subtle than that. Their notion is, and if it happens, it's, it, it's great. It's great for them because they're, they're dying of air pollution and so on that they've had to go through a self-destructive phase of energy building. And that the second, second phase, they needed energy. They needed coal, that's all they could afford. And that the planning they're doing now is about how to extinguish the resources that they put into doing this form of energy building. They're much more self-critical than the Indians, who are still stuck in this sim more simplistic, you know, you had your innings, now it's us, us turn, our turn. And um, I, I believe them. You know, I think that, that I, I was very impressed by, by, by these things. You know, they built up a massive... Uh, uh, coal infrastructure in in China, which they are dismantling, uh, and I think, and you know, it, that is something that gives me hope that you can politically do that. Now it is a it's a tyranny, so this was decided at the top. They think they can make money by uh, going uh, doing greener ways of production. They're the world's leaders in uh, 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 solar panels, and they're incredibly inventive engineers about uh, um, uh, making good quality solar panels very cheap, and they sell them internally as well as externally. But um, it's an exception. You know, I, I think this much more crude it's our turn to pollute, is at least from what I've seen in the discussions we had uh, leading up to Habitat 3, that's a more standard view in the developing world. You know this in, in, in Brazil. That's a horrible, th one of the many horrible things about Bolsonaro. That's, you know, it's our turn now. We get to develop Want to have a no, no. Okay, wonderful. I'm afraid I do have to uh, call the evening to a close. Um, just a couple of points to remind you. The last lecture in the series will be next week on Tuesday evening, same room, same time. Uh, the students are collecting for their favorite charities outside, so if you're minded, please do give to them. 
And finally, please join me in thanking our speakers. Uh, Richard.